You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, Rena Caron Conversation, Anglo-Irish Lit 50, a special event to celebrate 50 years of Anglo-Irish literature and drama at UCD and to honour the founding role of Professor Roger McHugh. The event took place at the UCD Student Centre on the 6th of December 2017 and was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Marina Carr was introduced by Professor Margaret Kelleher. Good evening, everybody. I'm Margaret Kelleher, Chair of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama at UCD. Uh, and, be- and on behalf of UCD's School of English, Drama, Film and Creative Writing, and on behalf of UCD alumni, I- I'm delighted to welcome you here this evening. It's wonderful um, to look around the room and see present students, recently graduated students, uh, current uh, colleagues, uh, and much-loved former colleagues. So delighted uh, you're with us this evening. As you know, this evening has a dual focus. We're celebrating 50 years of Anglo-Irish literature at UCD by firstly marking the founding role of the late Professor Roger McHugh and secondly by featuring a reading and public interview with our esteemed UCD alumna, Marina Carr. I'd like to begin for a few moments, so this will be a somewhat detailed introduction and to explain the rich context of this evening. Uh, And I'd like to begin by expressing a warm welcome to Roger McHugh's family who are with us this evening, uh, to his daughter Mwirin and her husband Colm O'Brien, to his sons Cian and Connor, and to his grandniece Nora. And we're very pleased you're with us this evening. Former colleagues and students are also here, and they're represented by Dr Mary Canning, who will give the vote of thanks this evening. And as I say, it means a great deal to us that so many alumni of UCD, as well as staff, current and former staff and students are with us. I also relay good wishes from Professor Morris Harmon, who's unable to be with us this evening. Also from Professor Declan Kyberg, who's currently teaching in the US and wanted to extend, both of them asked to extend their good wishes to the McHugh family and indeed to their former student, Marina. And I also relay fond good wishes from uh, Professor Frank McGuinness, who's currently rehearsing uh, a play in London. To remind you of some of the details of Professor McHugh's life, he was born in 1908, educated in that loan and at the Christian Brothers School in Sing Street, Dublin. In 1925, he entered UCD with a scholarship from Dublin County Council. In 1928, he obtained his BA degree in English and History, followed by an MA degree in English, a higher diploma in education and a PhD degree in 1947. Although he lectured in the History Department for one year, his career in UCD was mainly with the English Department, where he began as a member of staff in 1934 and became a statutory lecturer in 1948. He was appointed Professor of English in 1965 and particularly relevant to this evening's events, he was appointed the first Professor of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama in 1966, a position he held until his retirement in 1978. His service to UCD involved his membership of the governing body from 1956 to 1965 as an elected member by graduates 
as a member of the Senate of the NUI from 1954 to 1972, and as a member of Aaron on behalf of the graduates of the National University, in particular from 54 to 57. He died in 1987 at the age of 78. And the generosity of his family is much appreciated by us all, which has enabled the creation of the Roger McHugh Scholarship. Professor McHugh's scholarship includes many influential publications. One that I think is especially pertinent today is his landmark article, The Famine in Oral History, which was published in Dudley Edwards and Desmond Williams' volume on the famine in 1956. It was an important early recognition of the value of the Folklore Commission and Archive here at UCD, and it's particularly, I think, relevant to mention it today when I think many of you will have heard the good news on radio this morning um, that the Folklore Commission here in UCD has been declared part of the UNESCO Memory of the World Register, a wonderful recognition of that priceless resource. Professor McHugh's publications included his work as editor of the Letters to Catherine Tynan, the Letters Between Yeats and Margot Ruddick, and his authorship with Morris Harmon of Short History of Anglo-Irish Literature from its Origins to the Present Day. And he was, of course, also an influential playwright. His plays Trial at Green Street Courthouse and Rossa were performed at the Abbey Theatre. Many of Professor McHugh's papers are held here at UCD Archives, and I'm very grateful to Orna Somerville and Kate Manning for their help in my putting together these opening words. I was perusing his papers in recent days and was struck by a memorandum which he first submitted in 1949 to the president of UCD, emphasising the importance of the development of Anglo-Irish studies. And he made the comment that Anglo-Irish studies in UCD were not in a flourishing condition despite, quote, the potential wealth of this field and despite the fact that it is one of the chief cultural bonds we have with our people all over the world. Professor McHugh was especially exercised that students at the time in 1949 didn't have the opportunity to encounter Irish writing in English in their undergraduate or postgraduate courses, with the exception of a handful of lectures. I'm very pleased to see the MA in Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama amply represented by current and former students this evening, and indeed to mention that we begin now our first year course with a course on contemporary Irish writing. It took Professor Hughes some time to obtain reform, and there's a handwritten note on the typescript in his own hand saying the result of his 1949 memorandum was, quote, some reform in courses, otherwise continued myopia. Luckily, the myopia began to disperse, uh, and by 1966, the university had recognised the importance of creating a chair of Anglo-Irish literature and drama, the first such designated chair in the world, which was held by Professor McHugh. And I hold that in a very noble lineage that extends from Professor McHugh, as you know, to Professor Gus Martin, Professor Declan Kybert and myself. Every year, and my MA students can testify this, we talk about the term Anglo-Irish. And the comment that I make is that although that term can now seem somewhat staid, when we think of the work of Professor McHugh extending from the late 1940s right through to his passing, we can see a great courage and indeed, I would suggest, a radicalism in his endeavours, 
which was to emphasise in a phrase that he used repeatedly in his writings, Ireland's distinctive contribution to literature in English. And it was that commitment to ensuring that Ireland's distinctive contribution to literature in English would be recognised both here in the university, nationally and internationally, that drove his work. Within 10 years, uh, the MA in Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama uh, had been very firmly established. The first uh, graduates of that MA graduated in 1967, and that's part of our anniversary here this evening. Within the first 10 years, 176 candidates had presented for the degree, and the figures, I think, make for interesting reading. Of those 176 graduates in the first 10 years of the MA programme, 119 were from the United States, 34 from Ireland, 9 from Canada, 2 from Germany, 1 from Italy, 1 from Japan, the Netherlands and South Africa, and occasional postgraduate students had visited UCD, also from such countries as, uh, uh, as Scandinavian countries and Nigeria. But also, I think Professor McHugh's work showed great prescience. And part of that prescience was his determination that the MA course should include an invitation to a guest writer or scholar to come for a term each year to give a weekly lecture and to hold a weekly seminar. And in the first 10 years of the operation of the MA, those guest writers or scholars had included Austin Clarke, Thomas Kinsella, John Montague and Seamus Heaney. It's, I think, that detail that provides me with a perfect link this evening, because, of course, what Professor McHugh recognised was the importance of students and the wider community in UCD encountering the best of contemporary Irish writers, which brings me to this evening's guest. Marina Carr is a graduate of UCD, a graduate of English and <coughs> Philosophy. Her play, Low in the Dark, was first produced at the Project Arts Centre in 1989, soon followed by that astonishing trilogy of plays, The May 1994, Portia Coughlin 1996, By the Bog of Cats 1998. In his collection, The Dazzling Dark in 1996, Frank McGuinness gathered together a number of plays by the then-emerging Irish playwrights, and again, I think in a wonderful act of prescience, he included Portia Coughlin. And I'm quoting from Frank McGuinness here. Tragedy is so often the consequence of a fatal lack of self-knowledge. Marina Carr rewrites that rule. Her characters die from a fatal excess of self-knowledge. Their truth kills them and they have always known it would. That rewriting, challenging, transforming of existing dramatic categorizations has continued to be a hallmark of her work. And I think for the benefit of us as theatre goers, it means that she has revitalised and deepened our theatrical experiences, not just in Ireland and internationally, in succeeding plays that include On Raftery's Hill, Ariel, Woman and Scarecrow, Marble, Hecuba, which was first produced by the Royal Shakespeare Company at the Swan Theatre in 2015. There have also been important revivals of her work already. One thinks, for example, of the major revival by the Abbey of By the Bog of Cats in August 2015. 
Her work has been produced around the world in theatres here, in Britain, but also in the United States. And indeed, recent translations and stagings include San Paulo in Brazil. And I think as many in this audience know, her very moving reimagining of Anna Karenina played for two months in the Abbey Theatre, finishing at the end of January 2017. She's the recipient of many important awards, including the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize, the American Ireland Fund Award, the M. Foster Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Macaulay Fellowship and many others Perhaps most importantly, certainly most recently, the very prestigious Wyndham, Wyndham Campbell Prize, which is a, a given to writers to mark international literary achievement. She now teaches in the English department at Dublin City University, and I'm delighted to welcome colleagues from DCU this evening. I want to finish with a quotation from Faber Drama's editorial director, Dinah Wood, who commented on Marina Carr's work in the context of her winning the Wyndham Campbell Prize just over a year ago. And these are Wood's words. Marina Carr is one of the truly great writers on our list. She dazzles with her dark, courageous and fiercely compassionate work, her humour, her tenderness. She is a lyrical writer. Her work has flashes of romanticism while being fearless in its exploration of humanity, of outsiders in particular. And she concludes as follows. We published three volumes of her work, which I've brought along as a sort of good luck charm this evening. And she entered, she finishes by saying that she's looking forward to the fourth and beyond. I know I speak for colleagues in saying that this is a really important evening for us in UCD to pay tribute and to express our esteem and indeed gratitude to our distinguished alumna. And it's my pleasure to welcome her this evening. Margaret, thank you for the fabulous introduction. Um, uh, I probably shouldn't be the one to welcome the McHugh family, but I feel very privileged to be um, part of your extended family this evening. Um, esteemed colleagues from DCU who made the journey across, Derek and Eugene, I appreciate that, and all you wonderful people in UCD. Um, I spent three very, very happy years here. Uh, I was talking to Brian earlier. He taught me briefly on the Masters when I bothered to show up. Um, and he was saying, what did I teach you? Was a drama in Muslim? I said, I don't know, because I was at home. I, I barely showed up. Um, and I re- it's something I regret now, actually, because um, the other side, we were just saying how easy it is to get a Masters when you're the other side of it, when you're teaching it, when you're trying to, when you're younger and you don't know what's involved, it seems impossible. And I just wanted to write plays. And I didn't think you could do both, which, of course, you can. But that was my kind of... Um, narrow-mindedness, I suppose. Um, I'm going to read from two things this evening. The first is from Hecuba, which Margaret was saying uh, premiered at the Swan in 2015. Um, And hopefully, well, they're talking about doing a production of it here, and I hope they do, because one one of the problems is when you write a lot of plays is a lot of them get produced abroad and they don't get done here. So you meet people and they haven't seen a new play of mine for five or six years and they say things to me like, are you still writing? And I just see red and I want to kill them. I say, yeah, of course I'm still writing. They just don't happen to be on here, a lot of them. 
So it would be really nice if it if it does make it here. Um, Hecuba is uh, a response to Euripides' uh, play of the same name. Um, while I love his work and love the work of the Greeks, I completely disagree with a lot of the stuff they wrote, um, and particularly uh, Euripides' Hecuba. In Euripides' Hecuba, he has uh, Hecuba kill basically her grandchildren, or he has her women basically kill her or two grandchildren. He has her blind polymester, and he has her uh, howling along the shore and then turning into a, a dog, and then from turning into a dog into a rock, which is called Bitch's Rock. So that's kind of the fate of Euripides' hands. Um, so I was looking at this, and I've been reading these plays down the years, and uh, the older you get, you, you, you know, you do a bit of background reading, you begin to say, okay, well, they're, they're actually, they were written at a certain point in time. They were written when the Greeks were trying to found a city-state and when they were trying to put manners basically on everyone and themselves. And uh, these tales, these Medeas, these Phaedras, these Hecubas, these Jocastas, these, you name it, um, Antigones, they're all women who are completely out of control. They're women who take power for themselves. They're women who uh, won't do what they're told, basically. And one of, the, one of the things when you're founding a state is you have to have, everyone has to do what they're told and everyone has to obey laws and they're inventing law and they're inventing how they should live because, they, as Nietzsche said, they were absolute savages. They really needed these laws. So one of the laws they had were laws around women and these plays then being produced for the men and boy children of the city-state, the polis, Athens, um, were kind of salutary tales about women, how not to behave as a woman or if you do this, this is what will happen. So I completely disagreed with all of this and thought, well, I'm going to have a look at Hecuba and possibly just invent a completely... I mean, I'm as, bad as, I'm as bad as him. I just went off and made up my own version. But it's more on um, trying, to, trying to see the world from her point of view. So I'm going to read you the first, couple, uh, first scene from that, or as much of the first scene as, as I can. And what you need to know, those of you who are not familiar with the play, what you need to know is Hecuba is the Queen of Troy, married to Priam. She's supposedly had 18 children, most of whom are dead by the time the play starts, the Trojan War. Agamemnon's king of the Greek army. Cassandra is her daughter, the prophetess. Polixen is her other daughter who will be sacrificed um, as a, a kind of a, a sop to, to appease Achilles, who is raging because he's... Uh, he's dead and he hasn't had enough um, death tributes um, from the army. So if they sacrifice a Trojan princess, it might make him a little bit happier. So that's the other daughter. She has one son alive at the beginning of the play, Polydorus, her youngest son, um, who's a boy of nine. Um, what else do you need to know? I think that the rest of it should be self-explanatory. Andromache is her daughter-in-law, who is the now widow, the young widow of Priam. Okay, so I'm just going to belt into it. So, uh, the throne room, Hecuba surrounded by her women. So I'm in the throne room, surrounded by the limbs, torsos, heads, corpses of my sons, my women trying to dress me, blood between my toes, my sons' blood, six of them, seven of them, eight. I've lost count, not that you can count anyway. They're not complete, more an assortment of legs, arms, chests, some with the armour still on, some stripped, hands in a pile. Whose hands are they? Ears missing, eyes hanging out of sockets. And then Andromache comes in screaming, holding this bloody bundle. My grandson, intact except for his head, smashed off a wall like an eggshell. They're through the south gate, she says. They've breached the citadel. They're here. 
I say, put him with the rest, put him beside Hector, his father's mangled body. She won't stop screaming, shut up, I say, you'll draw them on us. I tell the women to cover her mouth. We've no soldiers to protect us, all dead or still fighting, trying to save their own women, children. And I don't know where Priam is. He went out a while ago. When was it? Last night, yesterday. My women are putting perfume on me, perfume. I swat them away. The smell of blood wading in it, the tang of rotting bodies everywhere. Bodies that came out of this body and I want to vomit, but there's nothing in my stomach. They've cut off our food supplies. And Cassandra standing at the throne, that smirk on her face, I told you so, did I not tell you so, and I could kill her right now. And Polixena looking at me, petulant, willing me to turn this around, make it all right, make sense of it, and I'm glad at least my little Polydorus is safe. We've sent him to Thrace away from all of this. And then a soldier comes reeling in the door, Priam's head in his hands, my husband's head. They've beheaded him in the great sky god's temple. I say, where's the rest of him? What good is a head? We can't bury his head without the rest of him. And the soldier says, I don't know. They've burned the temple, burned the temple. The whole city's in flames, he says. And he puts Priam's head into my hands. I sit on the throne, holding it like a baby. His tongue's hanging out. His eyes are terrifying, a ferocious death. I try to close his eyes. They're caked with blood, crust, dust. I can't close them. And the soldier's weeping on his knees, holding my ankles. All the men castrated, he says. Not enough to kill them, must desecrate them too. And I say, the women, what about the women, the children? The women too, they're killing the women, he says. All the old ones, the ugly ones, the ones past childbearing, past work. And the children, I say, Priam's head is oozing onto my dress. The children, he says, all the boys and all girls under 10. Why, I say, though I know it's a stupid question, not enough room on the ships, he says. They're rounding them up, have them in the cattle pens, and I think this is not war. In war, there are rules, laws, codes. This is genocide. They're wiping us out. And then they're shouting, clashing of swords, more screams, and Agamemnon is in the throne room. And this is Agamemnon. Fabled queen, I say. She hears the mockery in my voice, so it's not complete mockery. I've been wanting to get a good look at her for a while. And there she is, perched on her husband's throne, holding what? His head, the blood flowing down her arms, and what arms they are, long and powerful. What's that, I say? She doesn't answer, just looks at me as if I'm a goat herd. The snout cocked, the straight back. 3,000 years of breeding in that pose. This is Hecuba again. They told me many things about him, this terror of the Aegean, this monster from Mycenae, but they forgot to tell me about the eyes, sapphires, transcendental eyes fringed by lashes any girl would kill for. I pretend I don't know who he is, and you are, I say. You know damn well who I am, he says, and you may stand, Agamemnon. And she says she'll stand when she feels like it, so I lift her off the throne. Now, that wasn't too difficult, was it, I say? I can't resist twirling her, though I know I should show more respect. Used, but good, still good. I was expecting an old hag with her belly hanging down to her knees, but she's all right. There's bedding in her yet. I wonder if she still bleeds. Will I ask her? No, not now. Leave her. She's lost everything. She's a queen was a queen. Behave yourself. Hecuba, God bless you, he says as he twirls me. God bless you, but war is hard on the women. He smiles at Cassandra. Cassandra smiles back, the little trollop. So you're the man slit his daughter's throat to change the wind, I say. Agamemnon, and the wind changed, I tell her. The wind changed. Hecuba, and I wonder what sort of wife he must have, this barbarian who calls himself king. Agamemnon, she's looking me up and down. She's an eye on her 18 children, I'm told. I wonder if they're all priams. I wouldn't mind making a son with her. Only way to sort a woman like that out is in bed. Take the haughty sheen off her. The arrogance, even while she's skidding in blood, stepping over corpses, the lip curling. This is my husband's head, she says, brandishing. 
get at me. You didn't even have the decency to give me back his body. Heck, these are the remains of my sons, I say, pointing to the dung heap of limbs, heads, hearts, necks, necks I loved and kissed. I have to bury them, I say. Agamemnon, my men will take care of it. I see the corpse of an infant. Who's that, I say? Hecuba, Scamandrius, Hector's babe. Agamemnon, I thought his name was a Styanax. Hecuba, no, Scamandrius, why do you want to know? Agamemnon, I wonder did Hector have two sons then? These Trojans, so sly, can't have any of them alive. Where's the boy, I say? What boy, she says. You know what boy, I say. Polydorus, your boy, your last born. Hecuba, I don't know. Agamemnon, you know. Hecuba, he's nine. He's a child. Agamemnon, children grow up fast. Last thing I want is Trojan sails on the wide Aegean, your boy at the helm. Hecuba, he's no threat to you. Where is he? He says. Can see the anger rising in him. A man of sudden rages can't be thwarted. I must be careful. Priam sent, sent him away for safekeeping six months ago, I say. I don't know where. A stab goes through me. Polydorus, they're going to take you too. Agamemnon, you know well where he is. And the longer this business goes on, the worse it'll be for you. And she starts crying. Please, she whispers. Please, the face crumpling. I've seen that look before on my wife's face when they made me drag Iphigenia from her arms, but I can't let the boy live. This is war. These things have to be done. Don't you have children, she says. I have lots of children. The daughters are stunners, can see the mother in them, what she must have been in her prime. Not that I mind the old hens have a weakness for them all said. Bore to the nostrils of girls these long years, they know nothing, understand nothing, but the look in this one's eye when you're on top of her, I give plenty to see that look hostile, weighted, challenging, and then transported once I get to the animal in her. The young ones won't reveal that, think it's all flowers and moonlight and concealing, think they've all of time to declare themselves but this one in starlight might take a while to get her down and willing by God when you did magnificent in the sack I'll wager and I'm rarely wrong in these matters and I say we'll find them whether you tell us or not. And she's muttering now, the children, why are you killing the children? Sell them as slaves on Lesbos, Lemnus, we can ransom them, they're children, they've done nothing. My husband's body, she says, walking round in circles, this is too much, she has to bury them all with her own hands, if need be. Hecuba, my husband's body, where is it? Agamemnon, I tell her there's no time, she has to get in the ships, but she's not listening, she's losing it. We're evacuating Troy, burning it to the ground, this city of liars and rapists. She's listening now. Turns on me. Blood rising, hands shaking with rage, goes into a reel, spittle on her lips as she gives vent. You came as guests, she hisses. Hecuba, you came as guests. Rolling in here, stinking of goat shit and mackerel, and you came with malice in your hearts. You saw our beautiful city, our valleys, our fields, green and giving. You had never seen such abundance. You wanted it. You must have it. You came to plunder and destroy. Agamemnon, she rattles on about their paved streets, their temples, their marble libraries, their holy Joe priests, their palaces of turquoise and pink gold. I say, where's Helen? We can't find her. Hecuba, Helen? Helen, Helen was never here and well you know it. Agamemnon, you have to admire her, the brazen stance. I say, you stand here, everything lost and still you lie. Who is this Helen, she says. And if she could get her hands on her, she'd tear her asunder. To enter a man's house, I say.
Beyonce, to bed his wife, to kidnap her, to kill her, to do away with the evidence. We want Helen back. We have our dead to bury too. Hecuba, Helen does not exist. You made her up. You needed a reason to take it all. There is no Helen. There never was a Helen. Yeah, 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 he says. That's your version. Cassandra snorts, plays with her bangles, stares at him. We need a treaty, I say. I must calm down, save what I can. We need to hammer out a treaty. Agamemnon, now we want a treaty. The little prophetess is wearing the bracelet I sent her. Young, far too young. The other girl glares, though I know she's no innocent, gave many happy hours with the bold Achilles. Way, way past time for treaties, my good lady. I tell the soldiers to round them up, get them on the ships. I'm going nowhere, she says, till I've buried these. She waves her hands helplessly. The place is an abattoir. I leave it there. Thank you. So many lines that resonate there. They came as guests. Wars, wars harden women. I'm going to move us back, I suppose, to a, a more personal idiom. And I'm going to start with the comment you made at the beginning of being a student here. I, I'm conscious that many alumni, you know, coming on campus for the first time in a while are struck by change, not least this building uh, and the lo lovely foyer where we'll have the reception later. So coming back, I suppose, to where one studied, I mean, there's must bring mixed feelings. <laughs> Well, I had, I had a lovely time here um, once I got used to the place. And it was yeah. massive. I mean, I'm from County Offaly, so I was coming up from the country at 17 and uh, trying to figure out. I was living with my step-grandmother um, in Terranure and getting the bus into town and the bus out. And once I figured that out, I figured out the lecture schedule, um, which took me about a year and a half. Um, <laughs> but once I did, uh, I loved it. Yeah. Um, and actually in third year... Um, Really, really loved it. I spent the whole of third year in the library. I spent first and second year kind of in drama stock and third year in the library um, and just fell in love with the subjects. A bit late, you might say, but... Um, and then I went off to teach in the States for a year and then I came back and I really missed this place when I left. I, I think a lot of people do when they leave wherever their, their alma mater, they do, because then you have to grow up and you have to make money and get jobs and get up on time and you know, set alarm clocks and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I couldn't wait to get back. So I applied to do a master's in Anglo-Irish literature here. And uh, Julie came back and uh, there was no sooner. I, I'd started writing by then and was putting plays on and uh, I had the best intentions in the world. I was doing it on Beckett and uh, Declan Kybert was my supervisor and Brian was teaching. Where is Brian? <laughs> There, he yeah, Brian was teaching. I was at a few of your classes, and they were they were brilliant. So it's not a comment on you; it's about me. Um, and then uh, the, the player, I just wanted to write yeah. plays. And when you look back on, on, I suppose, particularly the lead up to your first play, I mean, do you see forces there with the, the benefit of retrospect, you know, that, that made a difference or people who made a difference? I suppose the, the reason I ask is that I think that that idea really of mentoring in a very good sense of the word is often so important, but it can often take time to see it in retrospect. I mean, yeah, um, I think I'm just. I think back to the teachers I had here. I had Gus Martin. I had Seamus Dean. I had Declan Kybert. I had Brian there. Um, not as an undergrad, but as uh, briefly as a postgrad. Um, and then the philosophy. I had mm. uh, Desmond O'Connell. 
Mm. It was a brilliant lecture. Um, he used to come in quoting John Clare. It's fine. I remember he had huge feet. That's the other thing I remember about him. <laughs> and he was lovely to the students. And then we had uh, this Italian, Santoro. I don't know if he's still around. We'd re- Did he? Oh, sorry to hear that. Um, he was fabulous. And Richard Carney. So I had fantastic teachers, actually. Um, and it was up to yourself to mm. get there. And once I figured out, you know, that if the more you show up, the more you're going to learn. Um, but then I was impatient as well. Mm. To, I was impatient um, to, to start living in a, in a strange sort of way while being terrified of going into the big bad world. As soon as I came back to do the mass, I realised, actually, you know, what I really, my first, my first thing I want to do is work in the theatre. Mm. So, um, and it's strange having come full circle yes. again. Now I'm in DCU and they're incredibly good to me. Um, and I love the students. Um, I teach creative writing, mainly creative writing. Um, and, uh, you know, you just, you know, you just love them. They're great. Mm-hmm. The ones that show up and the ones that work and the ones that are reading the stuff. And I mean, I, I was probably hated because I'd come in and I'd have opinions and you wouldn't see me for six weeks again. I was one of those students, you know, that I knew everything. Who have their value. Yeah. And I, I, when you have a few of them, I, mean, I just laugh now because it's exactly the way I was, you know. Um, you read one book and you think you know it all. But um, I suppose you have to start somewhere. And I suppose I'm, I'm curious about that transition and I think particularly colleagues who are, who are here from drama and theatre in UCD might, might especially want me to probe that of, you know, that transition from being a student in, into being a young woman working in the world of theatre. I mean, you've gone on, you know, to work with some phenomenal people. I might talk about that in a moment, but particularly that transition into, you know, the production of Low in the Dark and the project. And yeah. um, I, I'm particularly curious because I wonder if there are moments when people's careers are stymied at that point, that a, a negative experience early on, you know, um, so what, what makes the difference between a positive and a negative experience at that crucial early point of, of, of one's career? Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Actually, the, the first play I had uh, on was, I think it was the third, the first, sorry, how do I explain this? The first play I wrote was in my final year in, in, here in UCD, mm. and that was the third play that I had produced. So Low in the Dark was the second play I wrote and was the first play on. And that came about because the first play I'd written, Oola Lou, was circling around the literary department and the Abbey and the readers or whatever. And this director, Philip Hardy, came across it and they were looking for a writer. So I was very lucky. Mm. And they'd had, they'd had a load, there were a bunch of actors and they, they'd tried devising, they'd had several writers in and wasn't working. And I was kind of the last ditch attempt. Mm. And... Uh, I had enough sense to say, and I don't know how I had this sense because mm. I didn't know anything, but I had enough sense to say, I'll work with you if there was no money involved. Mm. I'll work with you if you just let me write the scene every day and all you do is I'll bring the scene in and you act it out and then I'll go home and I'll write the next scene. Mm. But I wouldn't do any of the, the other stuff because mm. everybody was fighting. Mm. So, and that was the way, and I wrote a play that way, yeah. which was Low in the Dark, which was amazing. And then subsequently, Ula Lou was done and very promptly taken off. Let's just be clear about that. Um, it only lasted about 10 performances. That was an old Mr. Noel Pearson, uh, who was just fabulous. I used to, I mean, the, these, I mean, the old style, I keep going on about it. No, you know, you go into the Abbey Theatre, like I go into Noel Pearson and he'd say, what are you doing here? And I said, look, I have no money and I have to pay my rent. And he'd go into Martin, who was the money. And I said, Martin, he said, well, just give her some money. You know, she has me hounded or whatever. And I saw I'd walk off with a couple of grand and, you know, he'd shout down the car, you got to write anthem for that? You know? <laughs> but it was like, but, but you would. 
Whereas now it's everything has to be signed off mm. and double checked and double this and double that. And, you know, the thing is dead before mm. um, before you even sit down to write it. So there was there was a real old. So I'm not saying it was great or anything. Mm. It was it, or it was good for everyone, but I suppose I was very lucky. Mm. Um, I think there are advantages as well in being young and incredibly mm. green and not mm. having a clue. Um, I think that helps. Yes. Well, to, to our good good fortune, you with me, <laughs> you, you, it actually goes over your head when someone's <laughs> insulting you. You just don't, don't get it. So, um, but you get it ten years later. You say, "Oh God, that's what that was about." <laughs> um, I mean, in, inevitably, that leads me to think perhaps of, of, of some of the discussions of, of, of the last couple of years, you know, which have had to do with gender and theatre. And I suppose to do a, a, a mini pirouette on this, it, there is one, I suppose, argument that some of the discussions about gender and particularly thinking of the controversy about the Abbey's, you know, poor representation of women during 2016 or in, and waking the feminist movement that developed afterwards is also a discussion about genre the interrelationship of, of, of gender and genre and, and that arguably what is also at stake is really the idea of a play and, and whether particular sorts of plays can, you know, can fit in, in particular sorts of theatre. And just when I personally had become quite comfortable with my theory about this, I heard you speak in really challenging ways about the danger of women also being made synonymous, for example, with collaborative theatre, that while many women work in that area, there also is a danger that women are seen as only doing plays that are to be workshopped. Um, so I wondered, could ask you to just explore that a little and, and really to tell us what you think of, of some of those, I suppose, quite urgent issues really about gender, but also about genre. And f for you coming in the tradition from which you come. Yeah, well, I suppose I came up the old style. You wrote the play and you sent it off. And mm. in those days, the artistic director read your play and had an opinion on it. Um, now, I, I know it's different from theatre to theatre, but um, the idea of an artistic director reading a play by an unknown writer, you know, in, in, in draft form, is, I would imagine is pretty unheard of now, unless it's an extraordinary artistic director. And very often it's not the artistic director's fault, but the problem is that you've got this, these middle people, literary departments, um, and they, while they're very necessary, um, they seem to have taken on a life of their own and they kind of, I don't know, something, something has been squeezed out. I think writers have been worked up to death. Um, I think it's been um, the whole idea of ideas and everyone having ideas. I don't know what an idea is, to be honest. I'm not sure we have ideas in this country. I think we have a lot of emotion. I don't think we're great on ideas. Um, uh, you know, so you, you have literary departments, you know, and they, you know, and you you're meant to go and pitch your idea and you're meant to basically talk the play out before you even know what it's going to be about. Um, they, they, it is assumed that they will have creative input, generally. Um, so the, the, the space for the writer is less and less. Now, I know I sound, I sound a bit maybe spoilt even saying that because traditionally, um, traditionally the Abbey Theatre is known as the Writer's Theatre, but actually in practice it has not been a Writer's Theatre for a very, very long time. It has been a Director's Theatre. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, I just think the space for the writer is getting smaller and smaller. 
where I am on gender and genre, I have apps. I'm very confused by the whole thing. Um, I think it's it, I think it's it's a fascinating argument. I think it's very necessary. I mean, we thought um, you know when the bras were burnt back in the 60s that that battle was won, but not at all. It's still you know we're still kind of in the doll's house uh, or a version of it. I think that's a long, long battle, and I think. You know, it's going to take it's going to take a long, long time for that to get anywhere near parity. And it's not just theatre; it's it's right across the board. So I think what's needed is a leap of faith, um, a leap of faith in in what women can do, and and women having faith in each other and in themselves as well. I think that's a huge part of it. We're very often not our own best friends, and uh, because it's 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 the typical thing, you know. We are a post-colonial society. We have replaced, we replaced those boys with something worse and we're just trying to rid ourselves of that now. But what are we going to replace that with? And it seems like the battle lines seem very drawn right now. And it seems everybody's kind of a bit afraid to say anything. Um, And you have to be so careful about what you say and how you behave. And it's like we're all going around terrified. We've kind of this mini little police society and how you speak and how you address each other and uh, particularly in, in big institutions. And it's it's kind of taken a lot of the joy out of just talking and human interaction. Now, I know some of those checks have to be in place because of abuses, but 99% of people are not abusers, you know? And I think we're all kind of... Um, we're all in the spotlight because of few people who have taken advantage of situations. Um, I, I suppose the sooner the, the discourse becomes egalitarian and becomes freer and that people are not afraid to actually voice a thought that is against the status quo. Now, on the other hand, you have, um, you have a whole, um, well, you have half the human race in a rage since uh, <laughs> since <laughs> since 500 BC, basically. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a lot of rage, guys. <laughs> it's, also, it's also a lot of dramatic material, it's a lot Marina. Of dramatic material. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I suppose to try and um, the way I, I I always think it's more to do actually with power than with gender. Mm-hmm. I always think it's people who are in power regardless mm-hmm. of gender that mm-hmm. they're the ones who call the shots. And if you look at it, that is that is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us are just trying to survive and get by and do what we love doing um, and, and trying to stay out of trouble. So um, I'm not sure where I'm being. Oh, no, absolutely. Gone off and I'm, not sure. I want to come back, I suppose, to two words there. One is rage, um, but the other is joy. Um, and, and maybe to think too in a more positive way of, of the writers or predecessors who've given you joy. I mean, very struck by the importance of Russian writers, for example, in, in tradition, or indeed Beckett. But yeah. maybe staying um, with, with the Russians for a moment, particularly thinking of Anna Karenina and your work on that. I mean, was that joyful <laughs> despite... Yeah, it was very fast. <laughs> it was okay. fast and joyful and kind of terrifying because uh, it was it was I was asked to do it quite late and uh, so it was a lot of work. The book is nine hundred pages, mm-hmm. so trying to put that on stage. Um, first draft was six and a half hours. Um, it had to come in at under three hours uh, and half an hour for an interview. So it came in under three and a half hours. The finished thing. So that was a hell of a lot of cutting. Um, it was a brilliant experience and it was brilliant for many reasons. I learned a lot doing that because it was so fast. There was no time for any preciousness. Um, because it was Tolstoy, I was serving it. It was, it was craft work. 
Um, so there wasn't time to be precious, but it, really I had no right to be because I was serving him and doing my best. Um, it was a fantastic experience. It's three, three, four narratives. Uh, usually we stick with the one narrative in the play. It's very, outside of Shakespeare, it's, it's uncommon enough, maybe some of the restoration, but to have two or three narratives in a play, yeah. it's something, it started me thinking like that. It's quite a complicated way to approach a play because it tends to be the linear narrative um, or just the, the one main story. Uh, so, so that was fantastic. The Russians, yeah, they're amazing. I mean, I haven't a word of Russian, mm. so it's always in translation, but it comes through, um, same with Chekhov, uh, the, the prose and the, and, and the novels. Same with Dostoevsky. I haven't, I'm by no means any kind of an expert in Dostoevsky, but I'm plowing through. Um, there's just some saying with the poets, Fetayeva, Pasternak, Akhmatova, you know, they're just, they have Brodsky, they all have, they have, and dealing with them in translation even, there is, um, I don't know what it is, is the dedication to, mm. you know, um, uh, Maria Callas Casta Diva, I live for art, I live for love. I mean, they, they really do. They're high, high romantics, like mm. romantics with capital R, I suppose, mm. you know, it's death, suffering, love, art, mm. uh, the big, and, they, and they do, they mm. torture themselves trying to live up to these ideals. I suppose the, if we're missing anything here at the minute, it's the yeah. ideal, isn't it? To have the ideal. Uh, and I, I was struck by that reading Woman and Scarecrow again recently of, you know, that, that wonderful line early on, you know, I, I have known so little romance in my life and isn't it war and peace? I think it's Maria. I have known so little happiness in my life. Uh, yeah, and just the, the I, I was thinking in particular of, the, of that sense of yearning that, that, mm. that, that you capture so powerfully in that play that, that, that seems to relate, again, I suppose, to Anna Karenina yeah. and, and that, particular, that particular sort of female yearning. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose one of the big challenges when you're trying to write a play is going back to ideas and uh, and what we feel and, you know, the big, big dilemma, you know, are we sentient creatures first or are we, you know, are we just trapped, you know, are we a brain trapped in this body we have to drag around with us? till the day we depart it. You know, is the spirit matter? Is there matter? Is it matter squashed down so fine or what is it? Um, so all these, when you're trying to come up with a character, the balance between what one feels and what one thinks and the dichotomy between what one feels and what one thinks, are, they're generally huge. I mean, most of us go around our whole lives saying the opposite of what we feel and think just to, just to stay out of trouble. Um, it's called the law, I think. <laughs> um, but when you when you think about it like that, I suppose writing a player on on you know a great actor can actually can carry both that what what they're thinking and what they're saying and carry that dichotomy or that contradiction. But it is it is I suppose writing a play and creating characters who actually get the chance to say out exactly what they feel. There's great joy in that, and there's great release in that. Um, and there's something really badly behaved about that. When I'm writing a play, I always try and write the good, the good version, and then the really badly behaved version. And the really badly, it depends on the mood I'm in, but the really badly behaved version is always the more interesting one, because I think at heart we are all rebels. 
you know, that we're all kind of poets, you know, or we're rebels with a cause or whatever, and that we, there's something in us, we just love bad behaviour, um, or we're very tempted by it, uh, while trying to be really good. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. You're, you spend your life trying to be good and go around with this idea that I am good. And then you've, you know, the whole inner life, the 20 other voices that say, no, do this, no, 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 do that, whatever. And just trying to, trying to control yourself um, and behave yourself and get on with people. But I think we might have taken that good behavior a little bit too far. The release, you know, the, the release that comes. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about productions and, you know, I think again, for so many of us, um, so many of our most powerful memories, speaking for myself, are to do with both the, that combination of your vision, the transgression, but also the, the visual um, aspect of, of the way your plays have been staged. I'm thinking of, say, Monica Frawley's wonderful set designs or it would seem you have been well served by directors, be it Connell Morrison, Gary Hines, Patrick Mason, um, do you typically tend to be involved in the production process? Do you do you sit back or are you quite involved? Well, it depends on the play. Yeah, uh, or the, the director. <laughs> or the, the director will allow me into the rehearsal room. Uh, it depends on the director. Um, if you have a good relationship with the director, they're happy to have you around and take on board, you know, your tuppence halfpenny work. Because the writer very often doesn't have a great idea of what the play is actually about. Mm. Um, particularly when it's a new play, everyone I think is trying to find out. They probably have a fairly good idea, but very often you can be wrong or your, your emphasis can be wrong. So uh, yeah, generally on a new play, I'd be around. Um, and if, if people want to talk to me, I'm very happy to do so. And if designers, you know, actors, all of that, um, you know, contractually, the writer is allowed to attend all rehearsals, is allowed to attend castings, all of that kind of stuff. But very few writers would push that because there is a point where you have to just get lost, really, and leave the director and leave the actors, get on with uh, what they're doing. And does that moment vary then from play to play, that, that moment of exit? Um, yeah, it does, yeah. And you, <laughs> you, you learn to realise when, it, when it's there, do you know, or before. You learn to realise to get yourself out of there before you're asked to leave, basically. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it does vary. Many of us had, had the great pleasure of seeing signatories. Delighted that Ailish O'Brien is, is here yeah. this evening and wanted to probe that for a little while in terms of a, a collaborative endeavour. Um, I suppose for us in UCD, there's the link that your, your subject in signatories was Thomas McDonough. And I think you have the line, isn't it, where at one stage he says, I should have been at home marking exam papers. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you tell us a bit about that experience uh, and, and again, the staging aspects of that? Yeah, well, it was uh, directed by Patrick Mason, so uh, Eilish and Frank had this brainwave um, to uh, write monologues for the signatories uh, of the proclamation and uh, commissioned eight writers. I was one. Um, I don't think we had choices on who we were just told. And I don't you pull them out of a hat. I got Thomas McDonough anyway. And I have to say, I knew, very, I knew nothing except Thomas McDonough by Francis Ledwidge, that poem which I learned in national school. That was the only thing I knew about Thomas McDonough. So I read the biography then. And I knew very little about 1916. Um, there are huge gaps in my Irish history. Um, I wouldn't say I still say I know much about it, but I was really, really taken by McDonough. Mm. I just, I just really fell for him. He was just beautiful, beautiful man. 
um, married, two children, university professor, piano player, Irish speaker, poet, playwright. You know, um, who was, I forget who was telling me that the last lecture he gave for the project was on Jane Austen. Yeah, I think was De- it your, Declan was, has made that was point. Was yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I, you just, I don't know, he was writing a, he was writing a play, I forget the title of it now, because I'm, you know, I'm like an actor, once I've written it, I forget all the research. It was about metempsychosis. Mm-hmm. I mean, something mm-hmm. really progressive mm-hmm. and Lacanian and Freudian yeah. for the time. And Yeats talks about him in, in the poem. Um, what's the line he has about McDonough? Young poet, I've forgotten. One of you here might remember it. Um, I've met them at the close of day. Yeah, yeah. 18th yeah. century houses. And one of them, he talks about McDonough, that he was a, a poet, a promising yeah. poet, that he was a very promising poet. Mm-hmm. And he was. Mm-hmm. I think, was he, was he even 38 when he was shot? Mm-hmm. Um, and just the idea. And then it was in the first a couple of performances were in Kilmainham Jail where mm. they were all uh, shot. Um, and that was really, that was really haunting, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. It, was, it was such a powerful thing. Um, and it, it was one where you really did feel mm. the ghosts were there. Mm. And they, uh, the designer, I forget who the designer was, but she had candles in jam mm. jars and it was really cold. And you can imagine how freezing it mm. would have been and they were filthy. Mm. You know, they, hardly that they weren't fed properly, mm. and the windows were broken because the place had been abandoned, and they mm. opened it up to bring them in, as far as I can remember. Mm. Um, and so there were no lights, and they they cut off the gas. Well, that was their own fault. Mm. So there was no heat because they would the revolution, whatever. Though the gas supply was down, so you get the idea of these men freezing, filthy, hungry. Um, and McDonough's wife trying to get to see him, Muriel trying to get to see him before he was to be shot. And there was a barricade up. And so then his sister, the nun, is sent to visit him instead. The priest, that wonderful priest. Mm. What's his name? There was a program about him. Um, Brown, is it? Was it Brown? Who, and he sent in, he looked after them yeah. all. De, De Bruyne, was it? Yeah, yeah and they wouldn't the, let him. They wouldn't let him. Yeah. And he, he really fought for them when they were there. They wouldn't let him be at the executions. Mm. And he was really annoyed about this because he felt that they were going in to the complete enemy and that there was no one on their side, yeah. which was really inhumane if you think about it, you know, that they were absolutely alone going to their deaths. Not even the priest was allowed in. And he wrote a fantastic letter in, I'm dreadful in names, so you'll know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. He wrote, the, this priest wrote a fantastic letter in that is on record. I think it's in, who's your great historian here who was the guy who worked on Dermot Ferreter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dermot Ferreter, I think, has the letter because I heard him on the radio talking about this mm-hmm. priest. Uh, his letter of complaint um, about not being allowed in and what he tried to do and uh, saying goodbye to them all. I mean, it's just heartbreaking stuff. The the, the lines are coming back to Wizard of the Other. His helper and friend was coming into the force. He might have won fame in the end, so so daring and sweet he's thought and for dredging. Because I I think one of the things that struck me watching it was that sense of missed uh, opportunity. And I know Colin Graham has said of McDonough that that he had capacious reading, uh, had read the Europeans, had a a real determination, which you can see, for example, in his writings in Anglo-Irish literature, he had a real determination um, that Ireland would be, you know, part of a European mind and imagination and and a real sense of missed opportunity which yeah. I thought you captured really powerfully. And he wasn't hung up on the, you know, the Gael Gore and the, yeah, yeah, uh, that obsession that literature could only be literature in Irish and you know, Hyde and I think all of them were 
uh, much more conservative mm. in their thinking. And it kind of was, you yeah. know. And so it, it was a happy fit between the two of you? Well, they shot the wrong guys, mm. you know. Mm. Um, but I suppose th- <laughs> thanks to them, um, we're, we're a free state, you know, yeah. in, in the way the workings, you know, if they'd just been sent to prison, yeah. you know, we might still be a colony. You know, you, one never knows. Yeah. Um, because it, it certainly fired up people yeah. and the idea that that will never happen to us again. What's the, mm. your man meeting uh, McBride uh, when they're, uh, is it holed up in Boland's Mills or wherever it is saying, you know, guys, this is ridiculous, him having fought in the Boer War, you know, that they couldn't get in contact mm. with each mm. other and that they learned from that, that the mm. next war was going to be very, mm. very different as, as it was. No, I, I was very struck, I suppose, that there is a sort of lineage in, in relation to what I was saying already from um, from Thomas McDonough and his capacious imagination into maybe some of the things, again, that Roger McHugh was aiming to do in terms of broadening Anglo-Irish literature right through to your own writings. We're probably running out of time in terms of the conversation, Marina, but I do want to finish by asking you about future work um, um, and what's next on Rafferty's Hill. They're bringing the back Abbey. on Rafferty's Hill to the Abbey, which is huge surprise to me because okay. I thought right. I'd, I'd see I thought I'd seen the last of that play <laughs> so um that's April is it that's April, April. Yeah. yeah um I'm working on a piece uh for the tricycle in London so I'm editing that at the minute it's nearly done and what else am I at I'm uh I'm having a look at Oedipus I don't know I'm trying to do something with Oedipus I don't know what but mm. something. We, we so wait. That's, that's where I'm at. Could we invite you to do a, a second reading before we finish? Well, Are you is, happy it, to do is that? there time? Yes, I think there is. Yeah, we'd be happy. To, it would be wonderful. Okay. Thank you. So th- this is from a play called Woman and Scarecrow, which I wrote a long time ago. Um, and the what you need to know for the purpose of the reading, so Woman and Scarecrow are kind of, Woman's the lead and Scarecrow is kind of her doppelganger, um, the voice, the voice, one of the voices we all carry inside us. Uh, him, him is her husband. And uh, basically, this is from the end of the play. It's about a woman uh, with eight children who's dying far too young. So it's a play full of regret and uh, all those things that come with regret. Uh, the finer feelings and the not so finer ones. Um, Okay, so I'm going to pick it up. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'm just going to pick it up from... um, She's talking to woman, uh, or she's talking to Scarecrow, and... uh, So, yes, Scarecrow comes on as death. I'm not even going to try and explain that. You'll have to read the play. But anyway, Scarecrow has become death, so just put that into your heads. Suspend all disbelief, right? And she's... uh, She's doing a questionnaire on woman. She says, uh, Scarecrow, uh, woman says, Scarecrow, don't do this to me because she dips a quill. She takes the blood out of woman and writes the answers to the questions on this parchment. Now, I hope that makes sense. Um, So woman is saying, Scarecrow, she's done. Scarecrow, don't do this to me. And Scarecrow says, I have no choice. You think I want to do this? It's out of my control. Next question, why did you stop seeking? Woman, that's the big one, isn't it? Scarecrow, no time now except for the big ones. He'll answer the question, please. The paperwork must be in order. Woman, why did I stop seeking? I didn't know what to look for and I was afraid what I would find. Scarecrow, yeah, that's the usual excuse we get. And love, 
Why did you not flee when love had flown? Woman, but it hasn't flown. Scarecrow says, here it has flown. Woman, it hasn't. He's here. Scarecrow, where? Woman, he's getting me champagne. Anyway, how could I leave my children? Scarecrow, you're leaving them now. Woman, this is a different leaving. Scarecrow, it certainly is. We're not talking a few years here. We're talking never, never. We're talking the five nevers and the four howls. Woman, so are you saying I could have turned up at the lover's door with the eight of them? Scarecrow, I'm saying exactly that. Woman, with what? How? For starters, it would have taken two car journeys. I would have had to arrive twice. And to arrive twice at the lover's door is worse than not arriving at all. Give me some credit for timing. These are stupid questions. Who designed this questionnaire? Scarecrow, you did. Uh, woman, will it be used against me, Scarecrow? It will be used. And the children admitted they were your shield to beat the world away. Woman, yes, they were. Scarecrow, you hid behind the nappies and the bottles. Woman, the mountainous bellies and the cut knees, the broken arms, the temperatures, the uniforms, the football, the music, the washing machine, the three square meals. Yes, I hid behind it all. Yes, I used them. They were my little soldiers. I was the fortress and how they protected me from terrors imagined and terrors real, my soothers, my buffers to fortune. And I'm sure I've damaged them in some vital, irreparable way, but I have also loved them with a hopeless, enchanted love. So Scarecrow's dipping the quail into woman's <laughs> wrist. This well is dry. I'm sorry, I have to do this. So, ksh, big fountain of blood. Woman, Scarecrow, don't, please don't. Scarecrow, we can't go back now. And if you could take a thought with you, what would it be? Woman, what would it be? That I have never felt at home here. Scarecrow, very few do. Woman, we don't belong here. There must be another earth. And yet there was a moment when I thought it might be possible here. A moment so elusive it's hardly worth mentioning. An ordinary day with the ordinary sun of a late Indian summer shining on the grass as I sat in the car waiting to collect the children from school. Rosalka on the radio, her song to the moon. Rosalka pouring her heart out to the moon, her love for the prince. Make me human, she sings. Make me human so I can have him. And something about the alignment of sun and wind and song on this most ordinary of afternoons stays with me, though what it means is beyond me and what I felt is forgotten now. But the bare facts, me, the sun, the shivering grass, Rosalka singing to the moon. And I wonder, is this not the prayer each of us whispers when we pause to consider? Make me human, make me human and then divine. And I wonder, is it for these elusive prayers we are here, these half sentences that vanish into the ether almost before we can utter them? Living is almost nothing and we brave little mortals investing so much in it. Scarecrow, you're determined to go with romance on your lips. Woman, I know as well as the next that the arc of our time here bends to tragedy. How can it be otherwise when we think where we are going? But we must mark those moments, those passionate moments, however small. I looked up passionate in the dictionary once because I thought I had never known it. And do you know what passion means? Scarecrow comes from the Latin patior, to suffer. Woman, well, I said to myself, if that's the definition of passion, then I have known passion. More, I have lived a passionate life. Yes, I have lived passionately, unbeknownst to myself. Here it lay on my doorstep, and I all the time looking out for it. Scarecrow, that's that out of the way. I'm afraid it's time, woman, but I'm not ready. Scarecrow, it's time to go. Woman, Scarecrow, please, my children. Scarecrow, I know, I know, but don't fight me. You won't win this time. 
Woman, just hold on till he comes back. Scarecrow, you want him to watch you die. Woman, yes, he was the closest I came to the thing itself. I think I've stopped breathing. Scarecrow, yes, it's over. Woman, Scarecrow, the next breath isn't coming. Scarecrow, it won't ever. Thank you very much. That's quite an ending, Rina. Thank you. Thank you for very powerful and memorable uh, words uh, and indeed your generosity in joining us this evening. I'm anticipating uh, a vote of thanks. I'm delighted uh, to welcome Dr Mary Canning, who's give the, giving uh, the formal vote of thanks this evening. We're delighted that Mary is with us um, as an educationalist, uh, as uh, a leading figure on educational policy. Uh, but we're particularly pleased that she's with us this evening because she received her PhD from UCD um, under the mentorship of Professor Roger McHugh. So welcome you, Mary. Thank you very much, Margaret. Um, I think I'm going to take about three minutes. Um, in thanking Marina, I hope it's all right if I start first with a few personal recollections about Roger McHugh. Um, and like Margaret reflecting for a moment on the, uh, on the tradition that he has left with us, which I think then we can think about in terms of what Marina has read to us tonight and talked to us about tonight. I, in thinking about this, thought it was a celebration of 50 years of Anglo-Irish literature and drama in UCD. Um, I first became involved uh, in UCD and with Roger in about my second year here, and he encouraged me greatly. Um, I did an, a master's with him in 1966 and graduated from that in 1967, and then went on, as Margaret said, to do a PhD. In thinking about Roger, and, and by the way, it's wonderful that Murin is here tonight because Murin and I were, were in UCD together at that time. In thinking about him, I imagined the adjectives that I would use. He was academically rigorous. He worked us to the highest possible standards. He could appear incredibly austere, definitely intolerant of sloppiness in, in what you might produce for him. But the side of him, which I think was the most striking as I got to know him as a postgraduate student, was his enormous personal encouragement. And the fact, I think, that he was completely gender blind. He absolutely didn't care what you were, who you were, as long as you were willing to go with him on that intellectual journey. And his intellectual uh, contribution to this institution was very wide. It extended into um, a very European view of literature coming back to Russia. I remember also him encouraging us to read Czech playwrights and then to compare them to what we were doing um, ourselves. He, uh, as he just pushed us very hard. And it is wonderful 
for me personally to be here tonight to say that. Um, on my wedding day in 1967, he called me up to tell me how well I had done in my master's degree <laughs> and to tell me, as I was getting dressed, that I'd better get back because he wanted to talk to me about uh, what I was going to do for a PhD, which made my heart sink. <laughs> but under his firm and fair guidance, in fact, uh, I did stay the pace with him and when I moved to the United States for personal reasons, Roger used to write to me. And in those pre-internet days, I had to post chapters to him and they came back with incredibly positive letters, which then did not prepare me for how harsh some of the comments were on some of the chapters. I still have those letters, Maureen. So turning to you, Marina, it is lovely to hear what you've done it's wonderful to have um, listened to your readings. And in reflecting uh, about your days in UCD, I can tell you they were some of the happiest days of my life too. And um, it's a pleasure and a privilege to know that Roger would have found nothing myopic about the wonderful, powerful reflections you gave us tonight about women, about power, about um, your interpretation of Homeric uh, stories, about your feeling about life and death. So thank you very much. Finally, my thanks to UCD alumni for making this evening possible, a particular thanks to Jenny Blake, with whom it's been a pleasure to, to work, uh, and to her colleagues. And please join us for the reception that's immediately outside. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.